Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the Hall Call Podcast, where we talk to some of the interesting figures about numerous events and stories that make sports in Virginia so unique. I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and your host for the Hall Call Podcast. Well, the state of Virginia has actually just crowned six new high school state football champions. Virginia, Liberty, and Virginia Tech are are all bowl-bound currently, but there is one football team in the state that is still in the mix for a championship, and that team resides in Harrisonburg, Virginia. The James Madison Dukes are looking to secure their third FCS national championship in program history and host a semifinal game this Saturday at Bridgeforth Stadium against Weber State. Joining us today on the Hall Call podcast, we're happy to have Greg Medea from the Daily News Record in Harrisonburg. Greg has been front and center covering JMU all season long. Greg, thanks for taking time out today. Happy to join you, Will. Yeah, busy time of year for the Dukes for sure. Absolutely. They, you know, they've, uh, they have definitely rebounded uh, from last year. And, and before we get into it, everybody can follow Greg and follow JMU and his coverage at Medea underscore DNR sports. That's on Twitter. So let's actually talk about this particular JMU team. Um, last year could kind of be considered a disappointment. There were massive expectations going in, coming off the championship game loss the year before. Uh, but last year, midseason, late season, they kind of stalled, particularly when it came to the running game, and they were eliminated in the second round of the FCS playoffs by Colgate. What were the expectations coming into this season? Yeah, for, for JMU, the expectations were, were sky high, and, and the new first-year coach, Kurt Signetti, he realized it coming from Elon, with Elon in the Colonial Athletic Association, as well as JMU. He knew what what the level of expectation was at JMU year in and year out, and he thought one of his first comments that he, he said to me after he got the job was, you know, the expectation is, is to play for national titles at JMU. The expectation is to be an annual national title contender. And I think with everyone they had coming back from last season, they didn't lose much off the 2018 team with everyone coming back from, from this year before, even though it was a new coaching staff and, and the previous coach, Mike Houston had left for East Carolina, that Signetti was going to embrace the expectation and that, you know, JMU was going to be expected to play for a national title this year. I think not only in Harrisonburg, but nationally with the FCS landscape, everybody had picked, you know, North Dakota State first and JMU second. They've been one and two in the polls all year. And it's kind of played out that way with JMU now having the opportunity to play in the semifinals. Third time in four years during the semifinals could get back to Frisco for the third time in four years if they beat Weber State Friday. But it's been the expectation all along. And, and players will say it, too. They knew at the beginning of the season that if they don't get to Frisco, it, it, it's hard to say the year's a failure because – you know, to play this deep into a season is, is hard enough. They've won 13 games in a row. That's not easy to do. But I think those players in the locker room, knowing that they got to Frisco in 2016 and 2017, and some of those players were on those teams, I think anything short of that this year, getting to Frisco and having a chance to play for a title, it, it would be considered a failure. It, it's crazy to believe it that, that way, but I think it's the truth. You know, nothing, not taking away from what the team did last year, but one of the storylines that was kind of underlying the whole year was Mike Houston. You know, he flirted with the Charlotte position and then eventually took the ECU position. Kurt Signetti comes in this year, as you mentioned, familiarity with the conference. Uh, you know, he, he really kind of revived this program. What are the big differences you've seen between how Coach Houston and Coach Signetti have approached this program? 
yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because on the field it, it doesn't look all that much different. You know, it's it's an offense that leans on a running game, though it's out of the shotgun and spread formation. is It's an offense that will lean on its running backs. In this year's case, it's Percy Ajayo Bisset, Jawan Hamilton, kind of a duo for JMU. In years past, when, when Mike Houston was at the helm, it was guys like Marcus Marshall, Cardin Johnson, Khalid Abdullah that, that helped JMU you know, win it in 16 and get back in 17. Uh, so I would say they're, they're very similar on offense, heavy emphasis on the run game. And then on defense, it's all about that attacking style and getting to the quarterback. I know when Signetti was hired, his big thing was that he wanted to hire a defensive coordinator that had similar philosophies to Bob Trott, the former defensive coordinator for JMU, who followed Mike Houston to East Carolina. He didn't want to disrupt that Signetti, knowing that JMU had the athletes and had the personnel that fit that style of defense better. Because remember, coming from Elon, he had run a 3-3-5 stack at Elon. Elon's a little different, doesn't recruit the same type of players JMU does. So Kurt Signetti kind of knew he had to adapt, so they went to a four-down front. Well, he went to a four-down front. JMU stayed in the four-down front when he brought in Cordy Heatherman from Maine. And, and Heatherman's philosophy is get to the quarterback, create chaos in the backfield, and they've done that all year long. You look at their two defensive ends, kind of stars, standout studs, however you want to put it, Rondell Carter, John Daka, and those two have done a nice job all season getting in the backfield and making plays. Dak is up to 16 and a half sacks. Carter has 11 and a half sacks. Carter's up for the Buck Buchanan Award, which is the National Defensive Player of the Year Award in the FCS. So to me, it really doesn't look all that different on the field. Personality-wise, I would say Mike Houston and Kurt Signetti are a little, a little different. I think Signetti is a little more relaxed, where Houston is a little more hands-on. I think Signetti is an excellent delegator, great organizationally. Houston had that, too. But Signetti has the more CEO-type of role where you'd see Houston more involved in drills during practice. So a little bit of a difference there. But I would say philosophically they believed in a lot of the same things and, and believed in a lot of the same things that help teams win football games. You know, one of the things that has been really interesting about this football team is the quarterback. You you alluded to, you know, how stout they are defensively, and you also alluded to the running game, which is basically a three-headed monster, but one of those heads is quarterback Ben DiNucci. But beyond that, you know, DiNucci's kind of gone uh, through a, a, a gauntlet of his collegiate career where big-time recruit coming out of the Pittsburgh area, committed to Pitt, played there for three seasons, but then comes in, transfers to JMU. Last year had a very good year, uh, but this year he took a jump in every significant metric that you measure a quarterback by, touchdowns, yards, rating, a completion percentage, and he's a CAA Offensive Player of the Year. Kind of talk about his progression and what that's meant to this to this great run that the team is on right now. Yeah, it's it's been huge. He's He's been terrific for them this season, and I think the number one thing he knew he had to address and Signetti and the offensive coordinator, Shane Montgomery knew they had to address with Ben was the turnovers. I mean, you think back to the losses jam you had in 2018 and they kind of correlate with disappointing turnovers from the quarterback in that Colgate game, the, the second round loss. And I, I know Tanucci's tired of hearing about it. He, he threw five interceptions in that game. And, and that really derailed the team in that trip to upstate New York to play Colgate. But if you look at it this year, he's done a great job. He's thrown five interceptions all year. Uh, that that, that kind of speaks to the massive difference and the massive strides he made. I know he, he worked with a private quarterback coach in the offseason, uh, a guy named Quincy Avery, who also works with Jalen Hurts, the Oklahoma quarterback, Deshaun Watson of the Houston Texans. He went and worked with, with them and, and those type of quarterbacks, too, Sean Clifford at Penn State as well. He went and worked with them, 
And he said that kind of really opened his eyes and really helped him kind of settle in and get ready for this season. Then you throw on top of it that Signetti and Montgomery uh, are you know, quarterbacks by trade, Montgomery at NC State, Signetti at West Virginia, and they both have coached the quarterback position in their career. Montgomery, when he was the head coach at Miami of Ohio, he had Ben Roethlisberger on his team. Signetti, of course, uh, you know, recruited Russell Wilson, played a role in that when he was an assistant at NC State, plus all the time he spent in Alabama around Nick Saban. So I think they understood how to put Danucci in advantageous situations, maybe not try to do too much, with, with his arm in terms of getting out of the pocket, throwing on the run, that sort of deal. They've kind of kept him under control. He's done a good job. They're taking advantage of what he can do in the run game while also picking their spots in the passing game, taking advantage uh, of some of the playmakers they have at the receiver position. And I think one of the things that have not only helped Danucci but helped the offense for JMU this season has been the addition of Brandon Polk, the Penn State receiver transfer, who – He's added just such a different dynamic in the fact that they can throw a screen pass to him and he can turn it into a long touchdown. Or they can, you know, just tell him to, to, to run a go route and he'll run past people in a secondary and, and, and run under a pass Danucci can throw. But I think the season Danucci's had and just talking to, to people around the team, talking to people uh, around at Bridgeport Stadium when they come for games, scouts, you know, there's a chance Ben Danucci will have a shot at the NFL. Uh, with with the way he's played this year, whether that's a, a late round draft pick or undrafted free agent, he's turned himself into, you know, a, a potential prospect because of the way he's played this season. Well, you know, that was actually my next question. You know, is he a guy that could follow a similar path like a Joe Flacco? You know, Flacco was another highly recruited quarterback coming out of coming out of high school, but for whatever reason, in FBS, it just didn't work for him. So he transfers to Delaware, and now I know that. Flacco has his detractors, but when you look at his overall NFL body of work, he's a Super Bowl champion. He led some really, really good Baltimore teams to the playoffs many, many years. You know, is Danucci kind of in that mold where, yep, you know what, he's got the he's got the measurables that people are looking for, but how does he translate to the NFL? Yeah, and I think another thing that that really helps Danucci just by way of how the NFL is going, you see that they're more op, more open, more opportunities for quarterbacks like Ben DiNucci. I'm not saying he's Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> he's that style. He's that style of quarterback in the sense that he can run. He can run zone read. He can run read option. He can throw the ball on the run a little bit. He's good with the quick passing game. To me, I, I think because the NFL is going that way, and that's whether he'd be a starter or a backup, I don't know, but those type of offenses who maybe have that type of player, that elite type of player, could look at Danucci and say, well, if, if our guy gets hurt, maybe Danucci may, may not be as talented as those top-tier-level guys, but he's good enough and has the same skill set to where they don't have to change their offense. So to me, I, I think Danucci, because of his skill set, because of the way he's improved and, and cut down on the mistakes, and I think that's the biggest thing. He's, he's eliminated those mistakes for the most part. I think he's played himself in, into a prospect and, and one the NFL will look at for sure. And, and take into account also that he's played for five different offensive coordinators in five years of college football. That, that to me is unbelievable. I think maybe the wealth of knowledge 
gained by that, having to learn all these different systems as a collegiate player could help him as a pro. Yeah, that is a wealth of knowledge playing for five different main coaches in five years. So now let's talk about their last game. It was an ugly 17 nothing win against Northern Iowa. The, the weather was bad. The atmosphere wasn't great. They held the ball forever, uh, but they just couldn't seem to get points when they really needed to get points. Aside from the win itself, what was the positive that the, the main positive that the coaching staff and the team took from that game? Yeah, I think I think for sure it was it was the defensive effort. You look what they did, no rushing yards allowed, five sacks, two forced fumbles. I, I think it starts with the defense. And with the offense, I think there were a few positives in the fact that, like you said, they held the football for, for more than 40 minutes, dominated the time of possession, keep the defense fresh, and allow them to do what they did on Friday night. And then you look at how they operate on third down. They were 13 to 24, over 50%. And that'll keep you on the field and allow you to win that time of possession. So there were some things that, that I think were, was positive about the way they played against Northern Iowa on offense. And then you look at the running back, Percy Ajeo-Bisset. I, I thought that was a gutsy, gutsy effort. 33 carries, 124 yards, and they were not easy yards. I think he only averaged like 3.8 yards per carry. Didn't have a run longer than 15 yards. It was gutsy because, first of all, they, they said after the game, Signetti and Ajeo was they said that they were thinking about giving him an IV because he was so cramped up, so dehydrated. It was kind of a bruising type of football game. But he, he didn't want to take it because in order to take it in the second half, they would have had to pull him out for at least you know 10 minutes so he can get hydrated. So he kind of just gutted it out and toughed it out uh, in order to you know finish off the, the Panthers and, and control the time of possession for JMU. And Signetti said they went conservative in the second half, knowing that Northern Iowa really didn't show any signs that they'd be able to score against JMU's defense. They didn't cross midfield until, I think, their final possession. So I think you take away that the defense was was absurdly good and that the offense did just enough to help the defense. The offense will have to be better, you know, with semifinal round and if they get to the Frisco. Uh, but, you know, they'll, they'll take it in the quarterfinal win against Northern Iowa, which had a good defense coming in. Yeah, you know, and, and you actually wrote about it earlier this week in the Daily News record that their success so far in the playoffs really has been a total team plan. The offense carried them in the first game, the defense this game. What is it going to take against Weber State this Saturday? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, the defense is going to have to be just, just as good as they were against Northern Iowa. I don't, I don't know if you have to shut out Weber State, but because Weber State has such a good defense, you want to minimize the opportunities that Weber State has on offense. I think you got to give Jamie's offense as many cracks as you can. And and then I think you got to look at the special teams aspect of things against Weber State. Jay Hill is a former special teams guy for, for Urban Meyer and Kyle Whittingham going back to his Utah days. And Weber State just does a phenomenal job on special teams, kickoff returns, punt returns for touchdowns. They blocked the punt for a touchdown last week in their quarterfinal win against Montana. So I think JMU is is very aware that Weber State special teams can change the game, can change the dynamic of a game. And I know Kurt Signetti said earlier this week that he wasn't going to overemphasize and, and spend more time on special teams because JMU already does that a good bit during their practices but that he would make it a teaching point in meetings and, and go over everything that Weber State would do differently uh, than, than what JMU has seen maybe on special teams this year. And JMU should know, too, uh, because they've had those game-changing special teams type of plays 
to help them win in the postseason before. So I think special teams absolutely has to be on point and unaware. I'm very cautious this week with Weber State. A very good team they're playing this Saturday, obviously being in the semis. But, you know, the elephant in the room is North Dakota State. They've won seven of the last eight national championships. The only one they actually didn't win was uh, when JMU knocked them out in the semis a couple years ago. Uh, but they did get revenge the following year. Um, how does JMU potentially match up with the Bison? Yeah, I, I think pretty good. Uh, I would I would look at two teams that have similar identities. I, I think all these teams left do uh, run the football, stop the run, rely on a quarterback that doesn't make mistakes. You look at what North Dakota State's quarterback Trey Lance has done, all those touchdowns and, and no interceptions all year. That's it's just truly impressive. But I, I think they'd match up well with the Bison because they can run the ball. There aren't many teams that can hang with the Bison at their own game, and that's controlling time of possession, dominating on third down. And JMU has done that this year against all their opponents. So I think they'd match up pretty well. And it's it's one that's not foreign to the players on the Dukes roster, you know, having gone to the Fargo Dome in 2016 and won, having played them in, in a close classic type of national championship game in, in 2017, and, and just being aware that, you know, that's that's the team everybody's thought that JMU would meet at the end of this season. So I, I think they'd match up well. There'd be no intimidation factor about playing a team that's won. I think they're up to, what, 34 straight wins at this point, uh, dating, back, dating back to 2017. So to me, I, I think they'd be fine, and I think they'd match up well. It'd make for a good championship game. I, I know it's every every everybody it's every game you know the around the FCS that everybody wants to see. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned that just the winning streak that they're on right now. But I think the stat I saw yesterday was they've only lost eight times since 2011. And Montana State's coach Jeff Choate has suggested that North Dakota State and their success is bad for for FCS football. Where do you stand on that on that uh, side of the issue? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people in the CAA would say the same thing about JMU, but <laughs> uh, to me, I, I don't think it's a problem. You know, people got to step up if they want to if they want to beat North Dakota State. You know, JMU spends money to compete at the FCS level. North Dakota State spends money to to dominate the FCS level. If if those schools have problems, Montana State, if his, his coach has a problem with it, I don't know. Get your tell tell your athletic director. Tell somebody that cares. You know, to me, that that's at least my take is that, you know, if, if you want to go complain, you, you got to show up on the field, first of all, and they'll have that opportunity Saturday afternoon. But and, until, you know, until schools are willing to spend more and until, you know, you're going to try to out recruit North Dakota State, I, I don't I don't know if you can complain. Uh, you got you just got to get better. I, I think that's the target North Dakota State sets and and JMU has been in pursuit of it. They've tried, you know, they've spent more money than, than anybody else in the SDS on football, uh, trying to get to that level. And, uh, and like I said, I'm sure the teams in the CAA don't like the JMU has, has taken a step up, a giant step above the, uh, up above the rest of the league. But that's the reality of it is that teams that want to win schools that want to be good at football are going to provide the necessary resources, have the coaches in place to do it and recruit at a high level in order to maintain success. The old adage is to be the man, you got to beat the man. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> you look at JMU and obviously the last two decades have been very successful, but even before that, you know, they have a good pedigree of football. Charles Haley, Gary Clark, both Virginia sports hall of fame inductees have, have, uh, have worn the Duke's Jersey, but yesterday was actually a very busy time for you. It was the early signing day period. Tell us about the new wave of recruits coming into JMU football next year. 
Yeah, so so Kirk Signetti and staff wasted no time kind of getting acclimated and settling into their, their their new program at JMU on a recruiting trail. They did a really good job in the state, kind of hit the, the main areas, and you know how, how talented Virginia is, especially if you go to Northern Virginia, Richmond, and, and where you guys are, the 757. Kurt Signetti said, that's the pockets we want to pull from in terms of in terms of how JMU wants to operate, in terms of how they want to recruit. And it's a, it's a dirt balance class, seven offensive players, seven defensive players. I think the headliners are A.J. Webb, Life Christian Academy cornerback, former Virginia commit, Kalon Black, the running back from Salem High School down in Virginia Beach where you guys are. He, he ran for, what, over 1,700 yards this year, had an offer from Virginia Tech, Wake Forest, chose JMU, committed to the Dukes last week and signed on Wednesday. And then uh, I think Matthew Steve, or Tyler Stevens excuse me, is another one. Ocean Lakes uh, offensive lineman had 26 total scholarship offers, came down to East Carolina, Liberty, Appalachian State, and JMU, picked the Dukes. So they're kind of encountering those Program, those those type of prospects that have mid-major offers, power five offers, and trying to go toe-to-toe with them. They don't win those battles all the time, but in the state, you know, JMU has a good reputation, and, and Kurt Signetti's staff did a nice job. Ryan Smith, who used to play at William & Mary, is familiar with the state, and he, he recruited the 757 pretty well. Matt Burkett is another one, cornerbacks coach for JMU, who did a, who did a good, nice job in the state. So they they, they piece together a good class in a year. I think it was only, what, a year and, and two days ago, a year and that day ago that Signetti was introduced at JMU. So his first full recruiting class, and they did a nice job in Virginia getting the kids they wanted to get. Also added two FBS transfers in that in that group, Stanley Hubbard from UConn, an offensive lineman, and Joseph Norwood, a defensive back safety uh, from University of Massachusetts. I think it speaks to not only the work that Coach Signetti has done, but the work that everybody's done to kind of build this program to, to what it is. The fact that you said they don't always win those battles, but they're winning battles against FBS teams and they're getting transfers from FBS teams. Uh, I think that that continued success is, is, is a definite because of that. We'll get you out of here in just a second, but it's, it's, it's going to be on a non-football question. On your Twitter page, it says you are a loyal Mets fan. We just announced our class, David Wright, for the class of 2020, David Wright is going in. Give us your favorite David Wright memory as a Mets fan. Oh, man. That, that's tough. <laughs> David Wright's fantastic. Well, first, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that barehanded play he made out in San Diego yes. at, at Petco Park. It's, it's all over the highlight reels. I, I remember watching it live and just seeing him catch the ball. I was like, holy cow, how do he make that play? Uh, so that's one. And then obviously in, in 2015, the home run he hit in the World Series, just kind of a great story after all the injuries he went through to get back on the field. So, you know, happy, happy for David Wright, for sure. Wonderful. Well, Greg, we, we appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk a little bit of baseball, but really JMU football today. Uh, JMU plays 630 this Saturday against Weber State in the FCS National Semifinals. So we're looking forward to it. We'll all be rooting the Dukes on. Uh, and, and we hope that you have a, a good time covering the game and we'll be looking for all of your, uh, your writings in the, the Daily News record. Well, appreciate you having me on, Will. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Happy holidays to you. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Hall Call Podcast. I'd like to thank Greg Medea from the Daily News Record for joining us today to talk JMU football. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Medea underscore DNR Sports. As always, if you like what you heard, please like, follow, subscribe to the Hall Call Podcast on SoundCloud. 
You can also stay up to date with new and previous episodes by visiting our website, www.vasportshof.com, or following our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at VA Sports HOF. I'd like to thank ESPN Radio 94.1 for their support of Hall Call, and of course, our executive producer, Thomas Simmons. I am Will Driscoll. Thank you for listening to the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Podcast. Thank you.